Good morning. By show of hands, how many of you hate daylight savings time as much as I do? I was wondering, who is it that we're saving all the daylight for? And likely when we finally give it to them, they'll just squander it in wanton tanning process or something. It's a miserable thing. I don't know why. Why couldn't Indiana hold out? It takes me three months to get used to it, and then I do it again. Last week, we looked into the moment of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. And this week, we're going to continue in Matthew chapter 26, looking at his arraignment and trial before the Sanhedrin and at Peter's denial of him. You kind of have these two stories running simultaneously in the Scripture. So turn with me to Matthew 26, starting at verse 57, please. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is the one who hits you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear. I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. 
And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. As I said, we have two stories that are unfolding here. One is of Jesus and the trial, the wicked, wicked trial, the mock trial that was that he was submitted to. And the other is of Peter and his denial. The order of events concerning Jesus, as Tim preached two weeks ago, we had the prayer in the garden. And then last week we had the arrest in the garden. And now he's presented before the high priest and we have the ecclesiastical trial. We have a preliminary trial that's not listed in the book of Matthew, where Jesus goes first to Annas. And then Annas sends Jesus to Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin for the for the trial that occurs in the night. And then there's another trial or a a repeat of that trial in the morning after the light comes. And I wanted to talk to you about the, 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 the court that we had here, the ecclesiastical court, just for a minute. Uh, the Jewish people were under the rule of the Romans. And so the, the Sanhedrin was in existence uh, at the pleasure of the Romans. They met. They had some authority, but it wasn't, it wasn't uh, great authority. They couldn't... Uh, try somebody and then execute them, for instance. It wasn't within their power. It was a lot like what I saw when I was in Rwanda a few years ago after the genocide. Uh, We were there working and we were getting ready to go on a trip. And as we were driving down the street away from the facility, I saw a group of Rwandans moving in on a school building. And they were approaching the building and you didn't see groups like that coming together for something official, I thought, well, I'd like to take a picture of that. And so as I, uh, I had the presence of mind to ask, and I asked the, the guy that was with us, the leader of the group that was with us, whether I could take a picture. He said, no, don't take a picture of this. I'll explain it to you in a minute. So we drove on, and he proceeded to explain. Before their present government, Rwanda existed with a system of courts that were led by the elders of communities. So the people would come together by community and the courts would be held and they would hear the cases and then they would decide on them by community. Then when the uh, present government came into power, they did away with, present government system came into power, they did away with those, those community courts. They were called grass courts. They would meet out on the, well, there wasn't much grass when I was there. It was like, it would be more like dirt courts because it was real dry, but they, they called them grass courts. And the people would come together and the elders would hear, well, that, that court had been done away with for a long time. And then after the genocide, they had thousands and thousands and thousands upon thousands upon thousands, probably millions of cases that had to be heard. And they realized that the, the, the judicial system in Rwanda would take a century to hear all those cases. So what they did was they reinstituted the grass courts and they set up community leaders and elders and all of the lesser cases 
the non-capital cases were handled in the grass courts. Interestingly, because there had been so many murders, the only people who were tried for capital crimes were instigators and ringleaders, people who were at the roadblocks, people who were directing the process. Just your average run-of-the-mill person who happened to hack his neighbor to death with a machete wasn't actually tried for a capital crime. They would actually be present at the grass courts. You might be sitting at the court, and over here might be sitting your neighbor who might have hacked your family to death, and over here might be sitting your cousin who might have hacked his family to death. You see? And that's how they were processing in Rwanda. But if they had a capital crime, if they found somebody in those grass courts who had committed uh, the crime of being one of the instigators and ringleaders, they wouldn't try them there. They would pass them up to the government courts. And then they would deal with that crime at a higher level. Well, this is a lot what was going, like what was going on here. The Sanhedrin did not have full authority. It was a little different, but they didn't have full authority. And so they were operating in ways, and they were dealing with things here to uh, put together this trial to, uh, to really take care of Jesus. They knew they had limited power, so they had to work very carefully to accomplish the wickedness that they wanted to accomplish. They even broke their own rules in the process because they even had rules about the courts that they would hold and what they would do and, and how they would be held, and they were never supposed to hold them at night. And they weren't supposed to have an arrest of somebody and try somebody who, has, who had been arrested with, bribe, with the involvement of bribery money. So Judas was bribed, paid to take them there. They were never supposed to convict someone and then see to the execution immediately or see to the, the, uh, the punishment immediately. They were always supposed to wait a full 24 hours before that happened. And I believe they weren't supposed to have these trials on holy days, which was what was happening at the time. So you see that they found lots of reasons to change their own rules to accomplish what, are they, what they wanted to accomplish with Jesus because they wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to get rid of him in the worst way. And they were doing their wicked deeds under cover of darkness. I want to talk a minute about the uh, different characters in the narrative and then concentrate finally on uh, a couple of them. Of course, we have Jesus here. His captors had taken him to the house of Annas first, where he's questioned about his teaching. And then he's taken to the Sanhedrin, and he's questioned by Caiaphas. The witnesses come. Before he's questioned, the witnesses come, and they bring false testimony. First, there's a group of witnesses that can't even get any story straight. And then finally, they come up with two, two witnesses who both say, he said he would destroy the temple, and in three days he would rebuild it. Now, do you know why that was a lie? Anybody know why that was a lie? I tried to put the emphasis on the right syllable. He said he would destroy the temple and in three days rebuild it. You see why it was a lie? Jesus never said he would destroy the temple. He knew that he, he the temple of his body, would be destroyed. But that was never what he said. So they had to frame the lie so that it would make it look like Jesus was attacking 
their temple and remember how precious the temple was to them. Absolutely precious. Jesus didn't respond to these men. He was quiet. He had to fulfill prophecy. So when his accusers brought, his, brought the charges, he didn't respond to them. As, as Caiaphas asked him questions, he started talking to Caiaphas about being seated at the right hand of God and coming with power and that Caiaphas would see it and that they would see it. And so what was he saying here? Was he saying something warm and fuzzy to them? I want you to know that one day I'm going to be the boss. And you're going to see me coming. They understood the threat. They understood what he was saying. And while this wasn't really elevated to the point of blasphemy because he didn't invoke the name of God as he said it, Caiaphas used this as a way to to turn the people and to turn what he had said and to say, Whoa, there it is. There it is. What should we do now? Kill him, they all say. And Jesus is there, and he's taking the rejection of his enemies, and he's taking the rejection of his friends. Who else is there? Peter. And we know from the book of Luke that Peter... And Jesus, after the denial, their eyes met. And what's implicit in that statement is that Jesus knew everything that had just happened with Peter over by the charcoal fire. And Peter knew that Jesus knew everything that happened with him over by the charcoal fire. And even in the context of the busyness of Jesus dealing with his enemies as they were setting him up for for execution, he was completely aware of what was happening with Peter as his own words to Peter were fulfilled. So we have Jesus there. We have the person Annas, who was in the past a high priest. Uh, um, When the Romans had authority over the Jews, they would appoint high priests. So the governors would appoint a high priest because then they had the person in the position that they wanted. They, They kept control over the whole thing that way. So in times past, this man Annas had been the high priest. And he'd been appointed by a governor named Caiaphas. Now, a new governor had come along. In fact, I think maybe it was two more governors. And new high priests had been appointed. And now Annas's son-in-law, Caiaphas, was high priest, appointed by the Roman government. And so in Judaism, there shouldn't really be two high priests at one time. But because of this situation, there was. There was kind of the high priest that the Romans were recognizing, and then there was the high priest that had been the high priest. And so in the Jewish mind, they were still both high priests. Jesus was brought to Annas first, and then he was sent to Caiaphas. Annas just asked him some simple questions about his teaching, and Jesus says, I've been teaching in public all over the place. You could ask anybody what I've said. And then a man struck Jesus on the face, said, you shouldn't speak that way to the high priest. And Jesus said, what have I done? If I've done something, if I've committed some crime, tell me what it is. What have I done? We have the, the priest Caiaphas who's there. 
And he's the present high priest recognized by the Roman government and seated above the Sanhedrin. And Jesus is before him, and Caiaphas is the one who, after the men give false testimony about Jesus, says, uh, do you not answer? What is it that these men are, trust- are testifying against you? Tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus makes the statement about being seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And then Caiaphas does something interesting. At that point, after Jesus says it, and Caiaphas is about to pronounce it blasphemy, what does he do for effect? It's something that the high priest was never supposed to do. It's something that Moses told Aaron he wasn't to do. Remember when Aaron's sons were killed because they offered an improper fire to God? And Aaron was told that he could not mourn for them or act as if anything bad had happened? Moses said... You can't do that. You can't mourn. Israel will mourn for you. You can't even tear your robe because that's not what a high priest is allowed to do. But in this case, the religious leaders had made an exception and they had said, okay, but for blasphemy, it's okay for the high priest to tear his robe. And so for effect now, Caiaphas tears his robe. This is blasphemy. And Caiaphas goes on in the process. I'm going to talk more about him in a minute. You have the people that are there, the incidental people, the temple guards, the servants, probably the Roman soldiers are gone at this point, but you have the temple guards and the servants, and they're the ones that are spoken of, not specifically by Matthew, but in other gospels, they're the ones talked about that are the ones specifically slapping and spitting on Jesus and and it may be that some of the Sanhedrin was doing that also. It just doesn't say. It isn't clear. But even these incidental people, you have them mocking Jesus. And one of the most amazing pieces of Scripture, if you think about it, they're, 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 they've blindfolded him. And they slap him across the face. And then they say what? Prophesy. Prophesy. Who hit you? Was it him or was it me? Who hit you? Prophesy. And do you see this picture? Can you feel the reality of what's happening? You have the God of the universe incarnate who had put in the mouths of every prophet of old all of the the testimonies concerning himself and the fulfillment of that moment. And they're slapping him in mockery and saying, Prophesy. It's just bizarre. It's just like makes you shake to think about it. And he's quiet because it has to be. It has to be done. He'd already made the decision about the cup he was going to drink. It was all decided. Revelation 19.10 John says, I fell at his feet, the one who was leading him around, whether it was a saint or whether it was an angel. He says, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that, for I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And here they are 
slapping his face. Prophesy. Prophesy. You see the uh, the humility of Christ who would subject himself to that. Just amazing to me. And you have the Sanhedrin there, 70 members plus the high priest, leading priests of the time, teachers of the law, scribes and Pharisees, elders of the people. And they're all coming together to judge him. And I'm going to talk more about them later. And you have Peter. And Peter is the other story that's happening. And I'm going to deal with Peter right now because he's not who I want to concentrate on, but I want to deal with him right now and let you see some things that will be a little like what I was talking about last week but are just beautiful to look at, what happens with Peter. So Peter followed at a distance, and he came in and he sat down to see the outcome. And as he was sitting there, a servant girl came to him and said, Okay, Amanda, stand up, would you, honey? A servant girl. This may have been how big she was. Thank you, sweetheart. Thank you. A servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. He denied and he said, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth, and again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. I can tell you're from just outside of, uh, you're from uh, Hogstot. What's that town outside of Terre Haute? Hopscot? Hopscotch? I can tell you're from there. Your accent gives you away. You're from there. My neighbor's from there. She has a very sweet accent. But you can tell she's from there. Right? And immediately he began to curse and swear. And he calls damnation down on himself if, in fact, what, he isn't, what he's about to say is not true. And he says, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. I don't want to spend a lot of time on Peter. We can all see ourselves in his weaknesses. You think that's bad. We have a hard time praying at the table at the restaurant, don't we? Owning up to Jesus. But we see ourselves in his weaknesses. And Peter was very, very weak. This, was, this had certainly to be the most weak place of his life. The biggest point of failure in his entire life. But I want us to consider just for a minute the before and after pictures of Peter. Because I just painted you the picture of what he was like faced with someone like Amanda. Right? I just painted you a picture of Peter's denial and failure. Just incredible weakness. Right there. But then you look at Acts chapter 3. You've got to look at this because it's just so much fun. I'm just going to read you parts of it. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John had just went through the gate, the temple beautiful. They just 
met the guy who is lame. Peter says, I don't possess silver or gold, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And the man jumped up and he walked, and the people saw him walking and praising God. And the people were gathering around, and when Peter saw the people gathering around, what did Peter do? Peter said, he replied to the people, it says, he says, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why did you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate. When he had decided to release him. But you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted granted to you, but put to death the prince of life. Now, this is Peter, the same guy who was afraid. And now he's in a crowd of people and there are probably some big people there. Probably some some uh, leaders in the community there, some burly guys and some. And what does he say? You killed him. You chose a murderer over him. Where's all his fear? Where's all his his trepidation? And you go down in the chapter and guess what? Then the Sanhedrin have him arrested. And he is brought before them on the next day. I think it's the next day. Yes. He's brought before them, and guess who he's brought before? Now, this has just got to make you smile if you've seen this now. Who's he brought before? Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin, who only a few weeks before had, had stood in front of him judging Jesus in wickedness. And what does he do now? Is he cowering? Is he crawling? Is he calling down oaths on himself and saying, I don't know who he is? It says, filled with the Spirit, he said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified... Whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? A complete transformation. Because of the work of God in his heart and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that should give you hope about your witness for Christ as well. That God is able to empower you and I for that. Peter would fall and fall to fear again. Never fear that low. Never falling that low. But he, we have testimony of him fearing at another time. And needing to repent again of his fear. My focus today, though, is going to be on the high priest and the Sanhedrin. So what does the scripture say about them prior to about their interaction with Jesus prior to their trial of Jesus, prior to their trying him. They had lots of interaction. There's one, though, that I want to call our attention to, that at the time when uh, the Pharisees in Mark 7 and the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem, and they saw that some of his disciples didn't wash their hands before they ate. 
Okay? And so they started getting after them. They were the bosses. They were the big guys. You guys don't wash your hands. Ah! What's the matter with you? You're not washing your hands. Your disciples aren't washing your hands. What kind of story, what kind of message do you have for our people? Poor hygiene. All our people are defiled because they're not washing their hands. And Jesus started talking to them about the traditions that they had put in place the traditions that they had placed deposing the law of God, particularly concerning the care for their parents. And he said, you guys, you guys take a tradition of taking money that you should, you made a tradition of taking money that you should have given to your parents to take care of them in their old age. What you did instead was you created this big, nice uh, 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 program. You called it Corbin, this dedicated program where you, you could go in front of the whole congregation and say, look at this money I have here. I'm going to give it to God. Aren't I holy? And instead of doing what you were told to do with it, you did what you thought would bring you, you did with it what you thought would bring you honor. And that's what they did. Jesus says, Jesus says, you're crazy. You're wicked. You think what goes in somebody's mouth defiles them? It's what comes out of their mouth that defiles them. Because what comes out of their mouth comes from, from inside their heart. Out of their heart proceeds evil thoughts and fornications and thefts and murders and adulteries and deeds of coveting and wickedness as well as deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. These are the things that proceed from within and they defile a man. And this is, you know, by implication, this just happens to be what you're doing all the time. Wicked men. And that caused them to really be endeared to him. Right? No, they were already hating him. They were hating him. Because he exposed their sin and their hypocrisy. Another time his disciples were going to the grain fields and picking grain on the Sabbath. You can read about it in Matthew 12. And, and uh, they said, hey, these guys are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, wait a minute. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Is it lawful for a man to get food if he needs to eat? And then to illustrate it all, he, he takes a man who's in the synagogue with them with a withered hand, and he says, is it lawful for me to heal this man today? And he heals him. And they couldn't, <laughs> they couldn't do anything. He's powerful. He's right. The people like him. And the only thing they could think to do was to go out and conspire as to how they might destroy him. That's what it says in the text. They went out to conspire as to how they might destroy him. At a later time when they were meeting, and it was at the time when Caiaphas was, incidentally, Caiaphas was the priest that prophesied about Jesus saying, uh, um, 
He said to the group as they were angry about Jesus, he said, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, that the whole nation not perish. And he said this by the Holy Spirit, but he was saying it out of thinking it was meaning something different, serving his own purposes to the men. And at that particular meeting, the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests were all working together in the council, planning on how they might kill him. So they were already working up a plot together, the whole bunch of them now. In fact, they were working up the plot, and they'd, they tried from time to time to implement it. And so when it was that um, when he raised Lazarus from the dead afterwards, uh, they went out and they saw the people following after him, and they looked at one another, and they said to one another, you know, you see what you are doing? This is what they said. Ben. Ben and I are Pharisees. Ben, you see what you are doing? You're failing. This is what they're saying to each other. They're falling apart in the group, blaming each other because they're not able to trap him and not able to catch him up. So they blame one another because their conspiracies aren't gelling yet. Well, they can't. It has to come together the way God planned it to come together. That's the way it's going to be. So why were they this way? What was it? What was the big sin? There were a lot of sins. There was pride. But behind all this, there was a really, really deep-seated sin. And it's revealed to us in the incidental testimony about what Pilate knew when they told him to release Barabbas to them instead of Jesus. In that testimony, it says that Pilate knew that it was because of envy that they had handed him over. It was because of envy that they had handed him over. They were unhappy. Jesus was having success. He was having good fortune. He had power. He had followers. And they were the, it was the success and the fortune and the following and the power that they used to have. But it was much better. And they were envious. They were angry. And resentful. They wanted the attention of the people. They wanted the followers. They knew what the people were saying. The people were saying, this guy teaches with authority. He doesn't teach like the old group. He teaches with authority. He was receiving their accolades. Their... He was receiving the worship that they thought they were receiving before. Only the worship really did belong to him. Well, I want to take a minute and talk about how we apply this scripture to ourselves. Particularly the application of the sin of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the chief priests. Well, you might think, well, there's nothing for us here. I mean, this is Caiaphas and these guys are the guys that tried Jesus. This is beyond the pale. You know what the beyond the pale, have you ever heard that expression? You know what a pale is? A pale is a fence post, a stake. If you're beyond the pale, that means you're outside of the fence, you're outside of the group, 
These guys are outside of our group, you and I. We're just normal sinners. These were big sinners. So we really can't, really can't apply what was happening with them to our lives. They're beyond the pale. They should, they should have been written up in Dante's Inferno, right? They should have been there with Judas in the mouth of Satan. And this is where we have to come to grips with the message of the gospel. Because while it's true that Caiaphas had particular gifting and power and will be judged for that, the envy that he demonstrated is no different than the envy that you and I demonstrate. Envy that comes, the book of Romans says, from depraved minds. Out of these minds and hearts come this envy. And envy that Romans goes on to say that those who practice it are worthy of death. It's no different than us. It's no different than us. The sin is no different than us. And we talk about sin here at CGS very intentionally. We talk about sin often. We talk about sin because we know one thing to be true. We know that unless we recognize our sin, unless we recognize that which we do that is offensive to God, we will not see our need for grace and our need to turn to the cross of Christ. So this morning, consider your sin. Consider the envy that's in your heart. Do we exhibit envy? Are we subject to envy, you and I? Is it a reality? You know, envy is such an obvious thing. We used to have this Boston Terrier, really old Boston Terrier. She would hardly eat her food in her dish, you know, and then we brought home a little puppy. So then what happened? The Boston Terrier was envious of this puppy, of everything the puppy got received, but more than anything, the Boston Terrier wanted to keep as much control the Boston Terrier could keep. So instead of doing what she usually did, which was eat a couple bites and leave her food, she went over to her bowl. Anytime the puppy came around at feeding time, she went over to her bowl. She ate everything that was in the bowl. And then her stomach just dragged on the floor. Envy is such an obvious thing. It's such an obvious thing. Jealousy and envy is obvious. We do exactly what the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees did when we're envious. It's, it's, it's obvious to people externally. They see it. Because we posture ourselves to take the greatest advantage in front of them. And it's obvious in private. Because what do we do in private? We, we kill people. We kill them. In private, we kill them with our mouths in the, dark, in the darkness when we think we can get away with it. This morning, we're going to receive members into our church. And the passage that Jody read from 1 Corinthians 12 is for us to think about. I'm going to read two verses, verses 15 and 16. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body... It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. Now that gets flipped around later in the chapter, but what's being said there? What's being said there is, I'm not Stephen. I'm not a part of this. I wanted to be Stephen. How many of you wanted to be Stephen? I saw a hand. It's, it's about envy. 
I'm not Stephen. I don't want to be a part of the body. I'm not Tim Wigener. I don't want to be a part of the body. Right? This isn't what God made us to be. But it's a temptation that we're subject to here in this church. It wells up within us. It wells up even in the pastors. And I wish it didn't, but it does. Wells up in the elders. And it would be nice if it wouldn't, but it does. And in the deacons and in the godly women of the church. It wells up. And in the band. And in the youth group. It wells up. Envy. Envy. I wish I had their money. I wish I had their looks. I wish I had their children. I wish I had their talent. I wish I had their position. I wish I had their popularity. I wish I had their hair. So we start posturing ourselves so we have whatever it is we wished that they have that we wish we had. And try, try, try to look better or change something. And in the dark and in private, what do we do? We kill them. Did you see how he blew it at the committee meeting? If I were leading that meeting, I would have done it completely different. Did you see what she had on today? And when we have the temptation... And we succumb to it. We give, it gives birth to sin. And we're fully envious. But when you think about the members of the body, it's especially interesting what's said in 1 Corinthians. Because after he says that God made each of us members in the body, it says that God placed the members there, each one of them, just as he desired. Why would you want to fight with God about what you are in the body? He has a plan. It's just what he desired. It's just what he wanted. As we receive these new members today and as people are baptized, it will be people with giftings given to them by God just as he desired. Some of them are feet, some of them are hands, some of them are eyes. Maybe a sideburn. Right? Just as he desired. For we were also once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God gave us forgiveness for our sin of envy. And not only that, he poured his Holy Spirit on us so that we would have power to fight and to win and to not sin with envy. Do you believe it? 